This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. There's been tremendous turmoil in the financial markets of many emerging market countries lately, and we're here to speak with Wharton finance professor Franklin Allen about where it may all be heading. Franklin, thank you for joining us at Knowledge at Wharton once again. It's great to have you back. Uh, So uh, just to give a little bit of context, let's note that there's been a lot of capital flight out of the emerging markets in recent weeks. Uh, I would say Turkey's the poster child, but it's also happening in countries such as India, Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa, and others. Uh, As we know, for a long time, the strong economic growth in emerging markets kept that money flowing in. Now, with growth prospects relative to the more developed countries, look to be sagging, that money's starting to rush out. And with financial liberalization, that, that often means that there's fewer capital controls to prevent it from leaving quickly. So some emerging market central banks are responding by raising interest rates to try and keep the money in. Of course, that has a, a big downside, which is that those higher rates means it's tougher on businesses to get loans. Uh, it hurts employment. And, uh, and uh, so there's this potential upside of keeping the money in, but a, a very big downside. And so far those higher interest rates don't seem to be doing much to keep it in. This is mostly equity money, as I understand it, at this point leaving. Eventually that could bleed into to debt, I suppose. So all of this is partly a response, I think, to the Fed's aim to tighten money, tighten this money supply, uh, to taper off, as they say, quantitative easing, and also the slowdown in China, which uh, often affects emerging markets very heavily. So, uh, Franklin, is this the dynamic that you see out there? And if so, what's causing it? in your view, and how far along in the process do you think we are? So I think it's, it's important to start with a, a somewhat broader view of, of what's happening. And you know, I think what happened over the last few years is that a lot of money went from low interest rate countries, particularly the U.S., but also from, from Europe and Japan and other places, to the emerging markets. These are the so-called carry trades that we've heard so much about. And they basically distorted a lot of asset prices in those countries. So just to take one example, look at what's happened to real estate prices in Brazil. They've rocketed the last two or three years. And yet that doesn't seem to be the result of how well Brazil is doing, because actually They've had problems because the money flowing is has pushed up the exchange rate and uh, made it difficult for Brazilian manufacturers, for example, to compete. And so they've actually had fairly slow growth. And so I think this is all a part of what many people have, have worried about, which is there have been what people loosely call asset price bubbles. And now when things are tightening up, what we're beginning to see is some withdrawals, some worrying about whether prices are correct or not, and that this is the start of a process which will certainly, to some degree at least, continue in the emerging countries, but will also gradually spread to other assets as as we go further and further into tapering and then eventually have interest rates start to raise. Do you think this is uh, then um, essentially a uh, a cyclical thing and that 
it's going to end up being an order, orderly takedown, uh, a natural process for assets to flow back and forth to where they get the, the highest return or financial assets, that is. No, I don't think that this is cyclical, in, in, although there's obviously a part of it which is. But I think basically it's this problem that we've, we've had asset prices distorted by what is now many years of these low interest rates. And the notion was, well, the emerging countries should be able to sterilize the inflows and deal with them. But in fact, it's very difficult to do. And these rises in asset prices, particularly real estate in many countries, if it's reversed, is going to cause financial stability problems in the same way we had in in uh, the U.S. and Spain and Ireland. So I think that, that those are the dangers. And the trouble is we don't really know what asset prices should be because we've had these very easy money policies for so long now. So for for these countries, I guess the danger is that um, they try to raise interest rates to prevent capital leaving so fast. That hurts their economy further. I suppose there's a danger of um, a run on their currencies, similar to the kinds of things that happened during the Asian financial crisis. Not to say it's it's at that stage or necessarily even heading there, but the the dynamic seems to be similar. Uh, and then, of course, once you start, you know, once the markets start to raid one country, uh, then they start to look at who the next victim is, and and you and you get this sort of domino effect. Is is that how big of a risk is that kind of thing? And, and could you just talk about what those risks look like right now? Well, again, I think there are financial stability risks. As you raise interest rates, and Turkey raised them a lot, but other countries raise them varying amounts. But as you start seeing big raises in interest rates, long-term assets are going to fall in price. And you know, if it's real estate and the bank's lent against that real estate, then that causes problem in the banks. All of these things accumulate, and, and people start worrying, wondering whether they should get their money out now. And then that creates the dynamic which you, you just described, that they're going to expect further falls, and, and we get into these very bad, self-fulfilling prophecy kinds of of equilibria. So I think we're still some way from that, but we've only just started tapering and we aren't even at the start of um, any, any of the developed countries really raising interest rates. And I think we've still got a tremendous long way to go before we get to back to some kind of normality where we don't have this very easy money in so many countries. So um, partly what's happening is that financial markets have become, become so globalized that, of course, uh, they're, they're interacting more than ever. And you, you, you know, the Fed tapers a little bit and you seem to immediately get results in, in some of these countries that, uh, that investors worry may not be able to keep up the, the returns that they've been getting. And uh, so that's – that's one thing that things are so interactive, and yet uh, there doesn't seem to be any one country or any body that has control over it. It's a it's it's a real network without any any sort of uh, real dominant player. I mean, the U.S. is obviously affecting a lot of things, but you know, what if this starts to slide out of control? Who's in charge? Is there anyone in charge? What could be done? Is there something the U.S. can do? Europe? Do they have an interest in this, or is it? Um, 
Is it just something that we we have to sit back and watch, you know, a, a, a mini or, or maxi Asian financial crisis all over again? So I think it'll be somewhat different than then because there there were these severe problems of of them having borrowed too much, both firms and banks in uh, foreign currencies, and and the unwinding of that was very unwieldy. Now, fortunately, we have central bank swaps as as a as a way of countering that. Now, the big problem with that is that they did this uh, arrangement; they kept China out of that. And I think uh, they should not have done that. They should have had uh, China included. But that is a big antidote to the kinds of very serious problems we had in a global sense. But I I do think that there is a breakdown in in monetary coordination. And Raghu Rajan was complaining about this a few days ago. But uh, this is the sense in which the global governance mechanism for, for financial affairs doesn't work well because the emerging countries are so excluded from it. And so when they face problems, there, there isn't a, a, a good way of, 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 of trying to solve those, I would say, because um, the IMF dominated by the Americans and the Europeans. And then we have this awkward switching back and forth between the G7, G8 and the G20 and it's never quite clear which group is in control. And of course, the G8, 7G8 doesn't include China or, or these, any of these um, countries like Brazil or India and so on, even though they have massive economies. Um, G20 does, but it, they don't really seem to be able to make decisions with so many people around the table, so to speak. So I, I think we don't have a good governance mechanism at the moment to deal with these kinds of issues. So it may well not be dealt with as efficiently as it might do be if we had better governance arrangements. Uh, uh, a lot of um, the countries that we're, we're talking about here are in Asia. And so um, one thinks back to the Asian financial crisis, and uh, you, you mentioned some similarities and, or differences. Uh, a lot of those countries, uh, not just the Asians, but they have more reserves uh, than they did, the foreign currency reserves, and so they wouldn't be quite so vulnerable to, to runs on the currency as, as they were back then. Um, and also this uh, swap mechanism that you mentioned. Could you just describe uh, the mechanics of that in, in simple terms? Uh, is, is that the set central banks swapping assets to, to sort of balance out where currencies are? Yeah, so the the basic idea is if you've got, for example, Korean banks that have liabilities in dollars, they'll need to get a hold of of, um, of dollars. And it may be difficult for them to do that in the markets if they're in turmoil. And so what these central bank swaps allow is for the Fed to provide dollars to the Bank of Korea, which provides some collateral for that. And then the Bank of Korea can lend to their banks in dollars and take on the credit risk. So that was a very successful mechanism in in the recent financial crisis, and it's one of the reasons we didn't have stresses of the kind we had in the Asian financial crisis. So that that's a big positive. I think the other big factor is is China here, because China has these massive foreign exchange reserves, so they've got $3.66 trillion now, 
And one of the things that we may start seeing is that if, if countries get into trouble rather than going to the IMF or some of the other more traditional institutions, they may just go straight to the People's Bank of China and ask for loans from them. Now, that may in itself lead to some issues about how they get hold of those dollars and so on, but I think we may see some interesting dynamics which we haven't seen before, both politically and economically. Um, You mentioned uh, earlier that um, one of the soft spots here is the the conditions of of some of the banks, which I guess is where some of the problems would show up first if if, if a lot of pressure built up. Is that right? Can you you discuss uh, maybe which countries uh, are most vulnerable when it comes to their banking systems? And, um, And also, is that, you know, given that places like Europe and the U.S., the, their banks are probably heavily invested in those countries. Uh, what's the potential blowback to them? I'm thinking of Europe in particular. Yeah, so uh, clearly there's a lot of cross-border flows, much of that is with banks. And this is the financial stability problem. And you know, if you look at countries which have had big real estate booms, and many of them had, those, those asset prices may fall significantly. And we may see loans go bad and so on. And many of these countries not not only have economic problems, they have political problems. So Turkey, Thailand, uh, you know, India is just about to have a a big election. Uh, There are a lot of political issues in addition. So that puts uh, the whole system under stress. Now, you know, which are the countries with the worst situation? I think it's difficult to say without a very detailed uh, examination. when This isn't like Europe where we're going to see an asset quality review this year. So I think it's difficult to predict exactly where the problems will be. But I think it's the countries which have a combination of economic and political problems that will tend to see uh, problems if, if they occur. I, it's not certain that they will occur. Maybe the asset prices haven't been that distorted and things will be fine. That's certainly seems to be what many market participants and many people in the official sector believe. Uh, Maybe a good way to um, put this whole thing in perspective is to uh, let me ask you uh, if you would provide uh, what you see as um, the best case, middle case and worst case scenarios and perhaps give some kind of a percentage weighting to, to each. So the best case scenario is things quieten down, tapering goes ahead, uh, Chinese economy doesn't slow down significantly, they have uh, no problems in the shadow banking system, interest rates start to rise maybe in a few, few quarters time, that happens slowly over a long period, and there are no financial stability problems anywhere. Uh, I think that's that's the rosy scenario. I think that's what the official sector is hoping for. Um, you know, the, the moderate scenario is we have a bumpy ride, and we see more of these kinds of events that we've seen in the last few days and weeks. Uh, but we don't see anything particularly catastrophic. Maybe a few countries have severe problems. Maybe somewhere like Turkey or Brazil has a serious problem, but by and large, we don't have a worldwide sort of financial stability problem. 
And then the worst case scenario is that asset prices are, are badly distorted and we see big adjustments and then we see overshooting because of some of the self-fulfilling kinds of prophecies that people start anticipating exchange rates are going to go down below what would be the long-run rates and all of those kinds of things. And we have a lot of turmoil and a lot of financial stability issues. And maybe that it's worse than what happened in Asia because it's not just an Asian problem, it becomes a global problem. And it feeds back between the emerging world and the and the um, developed world. Now, what are the probabilities on those? Well, hopefully the last scenario is not very probable, but it's not zero either. I think it's probably 10, 15 something, percent, something like that. And then I would say the moderate scenario with, with um, some bumpiness and maybe some countries getting into trouble and so on, that's probably fairly likely with a wide range of possibilities. And that's probably maybe 50, 60 percent. And then uh, I think the, the good scenario is probably the remainder, which would be 25, 30 percent, depending on, on how we, we fix the ones on the other two. But there is a huge range of possibilities out there. And I think the real problem is that nobody really quite knows how it's going to play out. And then there's always the risk um, that things just happen too fast, even if authorities, officials um, know the right thing to do or think they know the right thing to do and want to do the right thing, that, that the markets are just moving in at lightning fast speed and they, they can't get ahead of it. Right. And that's, that would be part of the worst case scenario. They simply lose control. Mm-hmm. So um, what do you think our listeners should understand about conditions in emerging markets right now uh, that's not coming through so clearly in the mainstream business press? So, you know, we hear a lot about asset price bubbles and so on, but there isn't much of a discussion of, well, what does that, if that actually has been happening, what does it mean? How is it going to play out? And I think that that's the thing that's missing from the business press is a discussion of, of what the alternative way of thinking about these issues is. So, you know, if, if you go back to the crisis of 2007, there's no really, a, there's no official narrative of exactly what happened other than some people in the U.S., for example, would argue, well, it was a problem in the mortgage market. That's not what happened in Spain or Ireland. What we saw was asset prices were simply way out of line. When they adjusted, it caused these big problems, and that created even more problems. Now, the big issue now is, have we done the same thing again? And I I don't think that is discussed in a serious way. People still think about the world very much in terms of standard macroeconomic models, but we seem to be in a very different world than that. And financial stability is at the center, and the distortion of asset prices through central banks, monetary policies and so forth, is something we don't have much understanding of, although it seems to be at the heart of what happened in 2007, 2008. And I think that's what's missing is a discussion of where are we at in that process. Does it really make that much sense that the stock market went up 30% last year? Why did 
real estate prices in Brazil double in Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro in a couple of years. What exactly is happening here? And what's going to happen as we unwind and try to get back to some kind of normality in terms of interest rates? And, um, you know, what what do you think is, um, given all the players and the complexity, what, what do you think is the most likely thing? Is it is it that we muddle along until there's... A, a big problem, or, or uh, I mean, is there is there enough understanding and forethought going into this to start to provide some kind of a more orderly unwinding? What what, what do you see happening, and what do you see happening going forward? Well, as we were discussing with the scenarios, I think there's sort of a, a good chance, maybe fifty, sixty percent, that we have a bumpy ride, but we don't have any catastrophes and. They manage to keep the lid on everything and have things happen slowly enough that we don't have major financial stability problems. So hopefully that will be the worst that will happen. Um, but we do have the worst case scenario there. That is that is a possibility. And uh, I, I think that the comments that you made in your question about things happening at lightning speed they, that can all easily play out. There's a lot of money that can move around very, very quickly, and these are very difficult, very different, difficult calls to make on how to invest funds. And uh, things can change dramatically with the kinds of foreign exchange reserves, uh, cross-border flows, and so on. We haven't really seen these kinds of orders of magnitude of flow internationally before, I would say. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. We appreciate it. And um, hopefully we can catch up with you before too long to see how things are going. That'd be my pleasure. Thanks, Steve. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.